defensive growth is a very prudent exposure to have right now, given those valuation levels, given the COVID backdrop and, and the geopolitics around the world. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. Despite NASDAQ valuations rebounding from their recent stumble, a fog of uncertainty hangs over the market. Should investors heed the warning of the VIX fear index, which foreshadows a turn in asset prices, or should they accept the more aggressive entry point as part of a sustainable economic recovery? Mark Rays, Chris Heeks, and Chris McKaney have the answers, along with ETF trade ideas to match any view of the market outlook. So whether you're bullish, bearish, or somewhere in between, today's episode provides actionable ideas. Before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to the BMO ETFs podcast on your preferred podcast player and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Hello, I'm your host, Mark Rays. I'm the head of product for BMO Games Canada, covering ETFs and funds. We're joined this morning by Chris McKaney and Chris Heeks, both our portfolio managers on our ETF desk, focusing on equity and derivative strategies. Uh, but with insight across the entire BMO ETF shelf. Let's dive right into things. Can we start with an update on the markets, where thankfully equities seem to have stabilized after the sharp drop uh, earlier in September? We're well aware of the economic and the political risks in the market. What about valuations? How do they look now compared to pre-COVID? And if you can combine that, what is market behavior now signaling? You know, when you bring this together, is is our defensive growth call still justified, or could investors use this as a more aggressive entry point? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, I think you know we had a little bit of fireworks last week when we were on the call with the Nasdaq in particular, um, price correcting. You know, since then, uh, like you say, we're we're incrementally positive. Um, there's been a little bit more volatility, but I would say incrementally positive, and that's been the tone the last couple of days at least. You know, I think market sentiment is generally positive, um, but I do think it is it is also fragile. And you know what that means is, you know, that sentiment can change quite quickly. Um, I, I don't think it would take much. You know, you look at the market behavior, what the market's signaling. I think one thing we touched on a, a call maybe a couple of weeks ago was this kind of disconnection between. Uh, the S&P 500 and the VIX index or volatility. And we're going to talk about volatility, I think, a little bit more later in the call. But, um, you know, we talked on the call a couple of weeks ago about there should be this inverse relationship. So usually as the market, the S&P goes down, VIX goes up. And then as the market recovers, uh, which it has, VIX should come back down. So if you look at the S&P, we're at, we're at essentially pre-COVID highs. Uh, but if you look at the VIX index, we're still kind of, double the pre-COVID VIX level. We're in that 25 to 30 range, you know, whereas it was perhaps 12 to 15 kind of pre-COVID. So I think that's an interesting disconnection. And I think that does, you know, you'll tend to see the VIX elevated when there's that increase in um, investor concern or investor fear in the market. So I think that's an important data point to kind of to keep in the back pocket. 
Um, in terms of valuation, um, you know, I think let's start with the NASDAQ. We saw that price correction a couple of weeks ago, you know, and I think that's the one that's on the top of the mind of investors. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty, um, you know, it's perhaps stretched as a fair word to say it. It's at the top end of the range, certainly for the NASDAQ. So, you know, I was looking at some numbers and, you know, I like looking at the, the price earnings a couple of years out because that'll take into consideration, you know, a, a, an expectation of, a, of at least a partial or, or if not complete recovery kind of a couple of years out from now. If you look at the NASDAQ PE on a two-year-out basis, uh, forward PE is at 26, you know, whereas the average over the last five years is 18. So it's about kind of 50% higher on, on a price-to-earnings basis. Now, we know they're great companies in the, in the NASDAQ, and they're capable of growing earnings, you know, quicker uh, perhaps and, and more more um, strongly than, the, than your average S&P 500 company. Uh, but still, you know, certainly you look at the graph, and the graph will, will, will immediately say we're, we're top end of the range uh, on the NASDAQ. And I think that's why last week, you know, I, I theorized that, you know, we could have some more price corrections in the NASDAQ. And in terms of the S&P 500 more broadly in Canada, um, it's similar, but to a much, much less extent. So valuations aren't as much of a concern there on your average S&P company. Now, I think S&P itself has become more of a reflection of, of large cap tech. These, these companies have taken on significant weights in the index. Uh, but, but as an average, um, it's, it's ahead of its, it's long-term average, uh, but, but not nearly as much so as the NASDAQ. Canada actually isn't trading at a particular premium, you know, from a valuation basis. So I think the valuations, um, you know, are going to tend to give you perhaps a little bit more pause than, say, this is an aggressive entry point right now, if that's all you're looking at. Um, the, you know, we've seen some interesting market dynamics. We've seen some green shoots of value, and we've been looking for these. You know, we do have a kind of a satellite cyclical call in our financials and our dividends. Um, we've seen these kind of green shoots of value throughout kind of the last six months since we've been recovering, but I would characterize them more as, you know, isolated strong days or strong two-day periods. Wouldn't call it a full trend reversal yet. Um, and then stepping back, you know, certainly COVID is becoming more of a concern. I think people are collectively pretty pretty stressed out with, with school and what this is going to potentially um, what we're going to see happen in the fall. Um, so COVID is, is by no means a game over. You know, Trump just said last night, you're just going to have a vaccine in four weeks. No one believes them. Um, I was trying to look up betting odds on, on COVID vaccine. I wasn't able to find that this morning, but, but we're trying to get a little more, more influence. But certainly the market is not expecting a vaccine this year. There's going to be election volatility for sure. So cycling all that back, you know, the, the, you know, the, the concerns with COVID, the, the potential sources of volatility with poli- you know, politics, evaluation. I, I definitely think the defensive growth is still um, still a good positioning. Not to say that, uh, you know, a value exposure could not outperform over the next couple of years. I certainly think it could. Um, but I think the defensive growth is a very prudent exposure to have right now, given those valuation levels, given the COVID backdrop and, and the geopolitics around the world. So, you know, that quality, uh, some mobile exposure, and perhaps tilting cyclically, you know, on the edges with financials or dividends. But overall, the defensive growth positioning, I think, is a very uh, prudent one at, at this time. Thanks for that, Chris. And, yeah, I think you, you certainly called it out where 
the the VIX levels are still still elevated for for across the markets, and it's uh, you know we've got the back to school, we've got the COVID risk, the election coming out. We're certainly not out of the woods, and so you know, people should not get uh, too aggressive in their portfolio positioning. Let's move on. Uh, we've we've discussed the market volatility that that reappeared this month. Um, we've been having a number of conversations around. ZPay, our premium yield ETF, uh, as a defensive way to approach equity markets, but as well with a dynamic uh, equity exposure strategy. So how has that exposure shifted over the past month and where is it currently? Some advisors are thinking about ZPay as an alternative exposure. Uh, We would expect it to have a higher correlation with equity markets, but what is the comparable volatility when someone looks to use this in their portfolio? Thanks, Mark. And yes, yeah, certainly a defensive way, as, as you say, to approach equity markets. Maybe just a quick recap as to what the overall strategy is. How 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 do we make it a defensive uh, approach to equities? Um, and so, first of all, what we do is, you know, we only invest about 35, 40% of, of the uh, overall portfolio directly into equities. Um, and we'll take the remainder and hold T-bills and sell put options to gain premium uh, to earn income on those on those options. And what those options do is gives us an obligation to buy the equities um, at a lower price should the equities sell off through the strike prices of our put options. And on the equities we do hold, uh, we run our covered call overlay, which is familiar to a lot of investors that, that invest in our covered call ETFs, where we're selling call options on top of the equities to generate even more premium. Um, but what that does also is as equity markets rally and they go through those strike prices, we will sell off the equities um, as, as they move through the strike prices of those call options. And so what that does is, as you mentioned, gives a, a dynamic allocation to how much of the portfolio is invested in equities. And as markets sell off like they did earlier in the year, um, the equity weight goes up. Um, and then when the rebound happens, you have a higher allocation to equities and are more uh, able to capture the growth, which we've, which we've seen throughout most of the summer. And so so that's really how the strategy has performed through through. Um, first the sell-off and then into the early summer, you know, that equity weight built up to uh, over 70% actually in, in the height of the sell-off. And as the market has rallied over the summer, we've seen that equity weight steadily come down. And in fact, once we entered September, um, just before the, the volatility we've seen recently, the equity exposure of the fund was just over 30%, which is actually the lowest it's been um, since inception earlier this year in January. So, uh, a very low allocation um, that we've seen so far anyway to ZPay as the market started to sell off a little bit in September. Um, you know, just looking at the S&P kind of peak to trough, there was only about three, four days of sell off there, but it was about five and a half percent on the S&P in Canadian dollars. Um, and this strategy only sold off less than one percent. So you can see how that, again, reduction in the overall equity weight makes it a bit more defensive as markets rally. Um, so that when uh, sell-off does come, you have some better downside protection there. Um, and certainly overall, what we've seen on a rolling sort of volatility basis is this has given you about half or even less of the volatility of the broad market 
know, currently looking back the last 30 days, um, the the standard deviation on on ZPay is about six, whereas on uh, S&P 500 it's about 16. So even less than half of the volatility there. And so what you're getting again is a, a lower vol- volatile way to approach the equity markets, a more defensive way to approach the equity markets. And at least so far this year, through all the ups and downs, you haven't given up any return uh, on that either. Your, the return of this fund actually matching uh, pretty much the return of the S&P 500 and Canadian dollars. So certainly in a strong upwards market in equities, you wouldn't match that return, but you'll get that less volatile way to approach it. Um, and you'll be able to protect more on the downside when that volatility does return and then take advantage of that through those option premiums that we're continually writing to to earn more premium. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Let's move on to uh, another topic where we saw BP come out with a report on something that's been a little bit of secondary news lately, but making a call on peak oil. So we certainly know that oil was, was crushed during the correction. We know it's important to the Canadian market. How has the energy sector uh, recovered through the summer? For those looking at a satellite play with something like ZEO, our, our equal weight oil and gas ETF, is this a deep value trade or is there something a little bit more opportunistic in today's market? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And, um, you know, for those looking at it as an opportunistic trade to the positive, uh, this, this report might be, you know, a little word of caution for sure. And pretty surprising, you know, frankly, to see BP coming out with. So a little bit of background. They just released it on Monday. And, you know, as you, as you mentioned, they have theorized, you know, essentially we've hit peak oil consumption. So, you know, the number of barrels the, the economy consumes or the world consumes per day, um, they think it's actually peaked um, as of 2019 pre-COVID. Uh, they identified, you know, the couple kind of major factors um, leading to that view were, you know, changing societal behaviors, you know, perhaps adoption of greener energies, electric cars, those sorts of things, and also the, the changing government policies. So um, the way they looked at it was they said, well, you know, those societal behaviors, those government policies, they could they could be rolled out in varying degrees of intensity, you know, or, or we could be business as usual, or they could be, you know, quite aggressive. So they, they modeled out different trajectories, but even in the business as usual one, um, they they had concerns that that it would ever you know exceed what we had in 2019. So it's not because of COVID, but COVID was sort of a, a catalyst. So COVID obviously eroded global demand for energy. Um, it's coming back online, but you know there's a lot of concern about you know the pace of that recovery to come back online. You know I think then you also step back and you look at where this is coming from. Why would why would BP who's a who produces um, you know, they sell, I believe, three, mil- 3 million barrels of oil a day. Why would they come up with this uh, report? Um, might, be a, might be a logical first question. So, you know, they really are looking at transitioning from a traditional oil company to more of a green energy company. So, you know, important to understand that backdrop as well of where they're coming from. Um, you know, in terms of the impact for the, the oil market, I think, um, you know, this this, this really points to, you know, obviously increased risk in the sector. And I think increased risk can lead to um, long-term outperformance, but it can also obviously, um, you know, be a significant headwind. 
So, you know, looking at kind of, the, if we're going to talk about prudent ways to play the market, you know, it, it, I think ZEO, our, our um, equal weight oil and gas ETF, is a prudent one. How would you play the energy market right now, given these kind of increase of concerns? I think you want to stick with seniors, first and foremost, um, junior companies. Again, the potential for outperformance is there, but the potential for, um, you know, we've seen bankruptcies um, in a lot of U.S energy players over the last few months and, 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 you know, likely that may continue. So um, if with the seniors, which is that EO, that EO all its components are, are um, large cap companies, ZEO includes pipelines as well. And um, the inclusion of pipelines is thinking, something I think you want to look for in an ETF. Uh, pipelines offer just a drastically different return experience historically. Um, than energy explorers. Um, so they, you know, they, they essentially double the return of the energy explorers. The energy, energy explorers don't have that great a track record. The pipelines, the pipelines do. And the inclusion of the pipelines does a couple things. It increases your yield and it increases the positive fundamental characteristics. Um, so, you know, if you look at our ZEO versus, uh, you know, an XEG, and we don't, we don't talk about X tickers too much, but you, you see a, 14% outperformance this year. Obviously, that 14% outperformance is, is still down 35% this year. So certainly it's a challenging uh, backdrop. And I think um, that report is, you know, certainly illustrates that. You know, I'd say the other way to think about playing oil is just to think about, you know, how do you play oil, you know, without going fully into a pure oil ETF. And I think, again, with our cyclical call on banks, and perhaps dividends as well, you know, you're going to get exposure to, to oil with the Canadian banks and you're going to get exposure to oil in the Canadian dividend strategy because some of these oil companies have quite healthy yields like Enbridge, TransCanada, and so, some of oil companies um, with, with strong yields. So you can get exposure to oil without being fully exposed. That's another um, way to look at how to play the space as well. So certainly an interesting report. Thanks for that, Chris. Yeah, certainly a number of questions coming in on the back of that report. I think, you know, if we look at where oil is, yes, it's it's recovered quite a bit, but sitting right around 40, that still doesn't uh, make for a particularly rosy outlook for the uh, for the oil producer. So still a, a value trade or a contrarian trade for those that are that are looking at it. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. We also encourage you to tune in to our deep dive episodes where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM's product suite. Our latest episode takes a sweeping look at alternatives focusing on gold, infrastructure, and REITs to help investors complete their portfolios with investments that are lowly correlated to equities and fixed income. Check it out. Episode number 29 in this same podcast series. So last question I want to ask before we go to the lines, uh, we brought out our sustainable mutual fund portfolios this week, which are risk-based solutions that combined our ESG ETFs with, with active mutual funds. Uh, we're having lots of conversations based on those, but as well on the, um, on the ETF shelf itself, where we brought out uh, ESG ETFs earlier this year. Is the talk translating to e- ETF investment? How are ESG strategies performing now that we're through the summer? You know, when you when you look at this, has ESG kept up with the recovery? Is one of the 
first questions we always get is, you know, is there a performance penalty when you invest with an ESG strategy? Now that we're getting a track record, uh, it's nice to be able to address that. So your views on ESG. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. I'll I'll, uh, I'll take that one. And it certainly is a uh, you know conversation that we're having more and more often, probably with with most advisors these days. Um, and I think you know it's it's partially you know client driven and partially just advisors wanting to get out in front of it. But at the end of the day, we think most advisors have to have an ESG strategy, um, you know, a way to approach this area of investing um, and, and there has to be a, a thought out articulate plan that, that advisors can give to their clients as to how they do this um, and you know is that translating to investment I'll, I'll say a little bit yes and no um, I, if I can toe the line there a little bit um, you know we've seen in Canada at least I think year to date we're a little over a billion dollars um, have been invested in um, ESG specific ETFs, and so obviously that number represents a very big, uh, a very big number, one billion dollars of, of new assets going into ES, ESG specific investments. Um, you put it into context, so overall, you know, in Canada, the ES, um, the overall ETF landscape has brought in over 31 billion dollars. So you know that one billion is a small allocation to that. However, you know most of the ESG specific ETFs are fairly new. So a lot of them have come out just this year and don't have that track record, as you mentioned, um, in terms of performance yet. So we haven't seen huge flows into the newer um, sort of ESG specific ETFs. If we look, um, you know, south of the border, I think, you know, to the U.S., uh, generally the U.S. Uh, market leads Canada by, by one to two years in terms of different um, uh, different things that we're seeing in the landscape. And in, in the U.S., ESG-specific ETFs have brought in over $10 billion year-to-date. In fact, the top three um, ESG-specific ETFs have brought in about $10 billion year-to-date. Um, and, of course, you know, a variety of others below that have brought in uh, assets as well. And so we're starting to see um, investors really putting their money to work into these offerings. And I think what investors are realizing is that there doesn't have to be a return penalty. There doesn't have to be a trade-off when you're investing in ESG investments. In fact, uh, what we're finding is that it might actually be the other way around. Uh, ESG companies that score high on ESG scorecards um, typically could be better performing companies in the long run. And so in fact, you might actually get a pickup in return uh, potentially by investing in these areas. As I mentioned, you know, a lot of the strategies, including our own, which were launched this year in January, don't have a huge track record yet. But what we saw um, in the sell-off in March and April, at least to start, was that there was a little bit of downside protection. You know, those ESG-specific ETFs, and uh, I'll, I'll, again, I'll talk about ours specifically, ESGA um, is the Canadian uh, ESG ETF offering that we have. So compare that to ZCN, the broad Canadian market. Um, you know, the drawdown was less with ESGA versus ZCN. And what we've seen through the rally here is that it's really kept up with the rally as well. Um, just looking back over the last six months, which captures most of that rally off the bottom, ESGA is up 17.1% versus ZCN 164 
So um, there doesn't seem to be a, a performance penalty, so to speak, when, when we get to these investments. Um, and I think it makes sense really when, when you think about what we're trying to do here um, with ESG-related investments is we're looking for the leaders in their respective categories and their respective sectors um, in these different uh, buckets. And E and S and G are actually very three very different things. Um, but when you find a company that, that is good at all three, uh, good at all three of those, uh, typically you have a strong, well-managed company um, that's functioning very well in its own industry, and that tends to lead to return performance as well. Um, so. Again, I think we have seen that investment start into these strategies, but I think we're still very, very much in the early days um, when, when it comes to this. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot more investment in this space as these um, strategies start to build a bigger track record and investors can see, um, you know, there isn't a trade-off with return. And in fact, there might even be a return pickup if I start to invest in this way. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And you know, I do find that now that we're getting that track record out there, uh, that that's providing a certain level of comfort uh, for advisors. And, you know, by having selected the MSCI ESG leaders indexes, which, you know, match the sector weights of the underlying markets, I think that's critical to, to addressing any performance concerns. With that, I would like to check if there are any questions on the line for Chris and Chris. Hey, good morning. I just wanted to ask a question. You know, today's day two here of the FOMC meeting, and they're not likely to announce any major changes. You know, third quarter numbers look uh, pretty good here, better than expected, uh, especially with the unemployment rate being around 8.4%, better than the committee's median forecast of 9.3% for 2020. Based on some improving sentiment here, uh, I was just wondering if you could speak about ETFs Z-Mid, the BMO S&P uh, U.S. Mid-Cap Index ETF, and ZSML, the BMO S&P uh, U.S. Small Cap Index. Is it too early? Is it too late? Is it a good time to allocate? And, you know, where, where could this fit into portfolio construction? Uh, if we look back to when we launched these ETFs earlier this year, uh, from then to now, obviously, they've, they've really enjoyed quite a good run-up. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, it's, you know, some, some people might say, um, you know, you should always have some allocation to mid and small caps. Um, you know, the S&P 500 obviously has 500 stocks, uh, give or take. They, they actually have a few more than 500 right now. Uh, but there's many more equities in the U.S. universe to, that you can potentially have exposure to. Um, you know, I'll start with the, you know, kind of the, the economic backdrop. Yes, the, you know, it's certainly improving, and that's that's good to see. But, um, you know, I, I would I would add one one note of caution that the headline employment number at 8.4 percent certainly um, much better than 15 unemployment. But we also want to see improvements in, in those uh, underemployed workers and discouraged workers as well, because you did see a tick up there. So. Um, I think given that, you are not likely to see much in the way of change from the FOMC. Very much they're still navigating a recovery. Um, I would, you know, expect them to kind of continue with their kind of approach of the, the modern monetary theory, which essentially, essentially providing a lot of stimulus to the market. Um, with the market receiving that stimulus, certainly it's been very good for equities, as you mentioned. And, and it has been good for mid and small. I think it's an interesting thing to think about because you look at, 
the S&P 500, you know, really been driven by large cap tech, you know, a small group of companies driving the return this year. And to some extent, I think investors have been looking for areas to diversify away from that somewhat. And we noted the high valuation. Um, you know, up until this run of the large cap tech, you know, really the mid cap, I would identify as we're, we're really a long term standout. So until recently, where we had this really great performance from these, these, these mega cap companies, um, the mid caps have this have an exceptional um, risk return benefit you know, over long periods of time long period of time. So I think you could certainly look to add some mid and and perhaps in a way that is diversifying away from the S&P 500, funny enough to think, um, diversifying away from exposure to those, to those mega cap companies where perhaps valuations are getting stretched. Um, small cap as well. I mean, I think given the tone of the call, um, you know, we're, we're talking about defensive growth, defensive strategies, you know, maybe perhaps a little less bullish on small cap, but then like I said off the top, you know, I, you could really look at, at having a persistent small cap allocation in your portfolio. It's going to give you some diversification, some exposure to growth. Uh, perhaps that weighting is just smaller. So, you know, where can you fit these into your portfolio? I mean, they're, they're core diversified exposures. So, you know, if you're holding, for example, broadly diversified U.S. equities, um, you know, you can carve out some of that and put it into mid, the mid cap, the ZMID, or, or some in the small as well, the ZSML. So, um, you know, we're looking forward to um, to investors embracing. I think it's been a little bit hard to pay attention when you have the things performing the way they have, but I think certainly the mid right now is is one that that I would look to to actually provide some diversification to some of those trends. Great, thanks for the question. Thank you. Appreciate the answer. Hello. Good morning. I was looking at the BMO ETF roadmap, and it seems like if recently you had a couple of global pickers. Uh, global on the ESG, global quality, and global also cover call. Um, I tend to look at more the global rather than Canada, U.S., and international. Is it a good play? Would you combine like the quality with ESG or combine the global quality with cover call? I'd love to have your feedback on this. Thanks. Sure, I'll take that one. And um, th- thanks for the question. Yeah. Uh, a global exposure obviously, um, you know, allows you to to get the best of, of each region, so to speak. And so you don't have to make a decision on you know, how much U.S. exposure do I want, how much Canadian exposure do I want, and how much international exposure do I want. Um, I have to build this with three or four different investments and then monitor those allocations. Um, certainly with a global um, approach, you can you can just kind of kind of take uh, that as an umbrella investment, an all-in-one sort of ticket uh, for you to get all all your equity exposure in one place. Um, in terms of obviously how to mix those together, it does depend on on what your investment objectives are. You know, an all-country world um, MSCI quality we think is a great one-ticket solution to get basically the best of all. Um, equities uh, in, in one place, including emerging markets. Um, that quality screen, of course, um, screening for those companies that have consistent earnings, low debt, um, and high ROE. So, um, you know, we think those screens, first of all, make a lot of sense when you're looking for equity investments in general. Um, but then putting that into a one-ticket solution where you're, you're getting the best globally, uh, we think makes a lot of sense. You know, right now that that fund uh, ZGQ is the one that I'm talking about here 
has a high allocation to U.S. equities. It's about 70% U.S. equities. Um, but that's just a result of where the quality is in the world right now. And as things change over time, you will see the, the uh, country allocations within that ETF change. You know, if the quality of the U.S. equity market starts to come down a little bit, um, you will see that reflected in the country weights of that ETF. And so we think that one is a, is a great solution to, again, get the best quality companies around the world, regardless of where they are um, and regardless of what geographic exposure um, you're trying to engineer. Um, in terms of, you know, mixing that with a global covered call, which has done very well for us, our ZWG, um, a global approach to that high dividend covered call strategy that, that we have uh, several different tickers on um, and have done very well for us. You know, certainly for income oriented investors, we think that's a great place to go, you know, extracting income from global equities in a very tax efficient way, um, we think makes a lot of sense in particular uh, because of the challenges and getting yield out of the fixed income market these days, you know, having to get yield out of equities, um, in particular in a tax efficient manner, um, is that much more important than it used to be. Um, and so that strategy again would would kind of um, take take the best sort of dividend payers um, from around the globe, and then and then add that again uh, covered call overlay on top of it in order to generate income. So depending on what your investment objective is you can certainly blend those two together if you just want growth you lean towards the zgq if you need that income you lead towards the zwg um, and if you want to mix obviously you can mix those in, in different allocations as well hey guys at the top of the segment you're talking about value versus some of the growth strategies and what we should be thinking about if we're adding to any equity market right now just wondering with regards to the esg space uh, do the ESG strategy tend to be one versus the other? Uh, is it implicit or is it just a function of where the quality names are coming from? And thanks for the question. I can jump in on that one. Um, I think with ESG, one thing you do get is that exposure to quality. Um, you tend to have better governance and, and governance is the G within that ESG. And that, that tends to lead to better quality outcomes. Now, I think in terms of growth versus value, a couple things to think about. You know, our ESG products, the ESG leader indexes, they are sector neutral. Um, what we do is within each sector, we look for essentially the best half of those companies from an ESG perspective and seek to hold those. Um, so we're getting essentially the, the ESG winners, quote unquote, within each industry, but we're still keeping that, se that sector um, allocation the same as the broad benchmark. And that's going to ensure, say, we get the, you know, a value rally in energy or a value rally in financials, we're still going to participate in that. So we, we, we do have exposure, you know, it's value, it's neutral from a value perspective across sectors. You know, on a growth side, I, I think, you know, we do have exposure to positive growth. And, you know, what we were talking about, the BP, where they're transitioning um, to, to more of a green energy strategy, you know, again, I think this is a growth area. And we talked about, you know, ESG used to have a performance penalty in the past, uh, because money wasn't flowing to ESG, it was just it was just a marketing story, or you know it had a very niche following. What you see now is it has a very global following, and it's very important to um, most investors, or certainly you know many sovereign wealth funds um, have decreased allocations of carbon intense uh, companies. So in terms of where's the growth going to come from in say the energy sector, you know green energy is, is an area where we're going to probably see some growth. So 
you know, I think that translates through sectors. You know, we've seen it in utilities that growth has come from the renewable side. And I, I think we'll probably continue to see that um, growth and ESG are going to be, you know, aligned as, as more companies pursue kind of an ESG-friendly uh, strategy. You know, that syncs up with the end um, investors and shareholders, and it syncs up with society. It probably is going to sync up increasingly to government policies. So, um, again, we think, you know, there's going to be a factor associated with, the, with ESG, and I think they're going to they're gonna capture um, more growth over the long term. I think with that, uh, we will look to close off the call. So I'd like to thank everyone for dialing in today. Uh, we really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks once again for the questions. It's always better to address directly uh, what advisors and, and what we're hearing in the field uh, so that all can hear it. So much appreciated. Of course, thanks to Chris and Chris for your insights today, uh, for your ideas, portfolio positioning, uh, and conversation starters that we can bring back to our own day. For, so thanks for joining us today. And with that, I'd just like to thank everyone one last time uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you to Mark Race, Chris Heeks, and Chris McCanny for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about peak oil, ESG investing, and most importantly, while the fragile economic recovery continues to warrant a defensive growth approach. Our experts offered a range of solutions to manage the uncertainty, such as ZPay. You can learn more about this innovative ETF in our exclusive deep dive episode number 14, located in the episode notes below. For more information about the other ETFs discussed in this podcast, please access the relevant links also in the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or simply visit bmoetfs.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to subscribe. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed in future episodes, please send them to Andrew Vachon, A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at BMO.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment tax or legal advice to any party. Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.